In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me. Jesus, we put ourselves in your presence and we want to first tap into the habit and sentiments of Blessed Alvaro. When I was privileged and honored to be in get-togethers with him on occasion of these big feasts of the work, commemorating special events in the history of the work, he would invariably invite us in a gentle way to thank our Lord for this blessing on the church, on the world, and because he has asked us to be part of this mobilization to evangelize the world through our vocation. He would say, give thanks. St. Josemaria describes the history of the work as history of displays of God's mercy. In this period of time, our Lord wants us to look in a special way at his mercy. And the work is an expression of this mercy. We want to use a prayer of St. Jose Maria on this special occasion of commemorating the canonization, which is the sequel of October 2nd, 1928, we asked him, Jesus, talk to me. Say something to me. What do you want me to hear from you? And these feasts are designed for, yes, special celebration. We're not going to fight that. But designed for conversion. Lights from the Holy Spirit to connect with Jesus Christ in a closer way. In order to understand the significance of the canonization, any canonization is extremely significant. It's a high point in the history of the church. It's quite something, it's quite an experience. The explosion of joy, the festive tone of a canonization, because canonization is an infallible declaration of the church, which means there's no possibility of error in this determination, in this judgment of the church, that this person is a saint. This person has lived a heroic following of Christ. He has lived the gospel to a heroic degree, which does not mean that the person didn't have defects or weaknesses or sins. There doesn't exist a person of that stripe except for the Blessed Mother. But it does mean that through his cooperation with the work of the Holy Spirit, he is allowed 
Christ to reach a culmination in his life or her life that he could say, it is no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. And the church recognizes that. This is reinforced by miracles that have no scientific explanation. And the church declares this person as a role model. That's why he got canonized relatively soon. The church wants him as a role model. Understandably so. As John Paul unofficially labeled him, he is the patron saint of the ordinary. Let's look at this. Let's look at the October 2nd event. The October 2nd event has cosmic implications and ramifications. It's, in a certain sense, an unprecedented divine preternatural intervention. I, I don't say just supernatural because what we're doing here is supernatural. We're coming before the Blessed Sacrament in prayer. That's supernatural. And we will celebrate the greatest supernatural event, extraordinary supernatural event, which is the, the Mass. But preternatural means out of the ordinary supernatural. It's ordinary, even though we'll never take it for granted, to have Mass. But it's not... Ordinary to have a vision of the Blessed Mother or a vision of our Lord or an interior locution that obviously is a direct divine intervention or an interior revelation, preternatural. What Sister Faustina was hearing from the Sacred Heart, the Heart of Mercy, uh, is preternatural. What the little children of Fatima witnessed is preternatural. What Juan Diego witnessed is preternatural. That's preternatural. What happened on October 2nd is preternatural. A divine illumination that allowed St. Jose Maria to see Opus Dei. Let's translate that a little bit. He saw our Lord in the world in a new way. He saw Christ embracing the world, hence the logo of the work, the shield of the work, that cross embracing the world with a reference to the Blessed Mother, the mystical rose at the feet of the cross. Why do I say unprecedented and we bring this to prayer? Because it's... Don't take it as, you know, dogma. It's... Virtually the only time that our Lord reiterated the divine commission. What's the divine commission? Preach the gospel to every creature. Be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Make disciples of all nations. Everything since then has been a subset. Monasticism, a subset of that. Every foundation, every institution, every congregation, every religious order has been a subset of get the gospel to 
every corner of the earth. We're going to do it by having a school for homeless boys like Don Bosco. All right, that's a subset. The Lord is going to inspire a great saint, one of the greatest saints, St. Francis of Assisi, with a charism to witness Christ, especially to the poor, with a special emphasis on poverty. Or St. Dominic Guzman, we're going to get the message through preaching and teaching, training people, the Dominicans. Our Lord's going to inspire a group to leave the world totally in a radical way, to pray for the church and offer penance for the church. This is all work of the Holy Spirit. And when people may criticize, less so now, I mean... Uh, the Da Vinci Code did wonders. I virtually don't hear that Opus Dei is secretive anymore. I hear other things, but that. Um, and one of the accusations, and maybe still is there, is that uh, Opus Dei turns the clock back. And that is certainly true. But the accusers who criticize that Opus Dei is turning the clock back and are against progress... They mean, okay, in the 40s and the 50s, the pre-Vatican II days. It does turn the clock back, but way back, like 2,000 years back, 18 centuries back, to the early Christians, where the burden of the church was in the hands of the laity. Yes, the hierarchy was indispensable, the laity cannot become the face of the church without the hierarchy. But the face of the church was the laity. They're the ones who brought the Roman world to its knees before our Lord. Not the entire Roman world, but they start to change the world. It took 300 years. And you read the oldest document after the New Testament... If I'm not mistaken, this anonymous author writing to someone by the name of Diognetus, you read that, and it's not anti-clerical or anti-hierarchical. I mean, just for the record, every pope was martyred until the Edict of Milan, virtually. Probably every major prelate as well. But you wouldn't think, you, you, you didn't get the, the impression, you wouldn't know, if someone did not know how Catholicism operated, you wouldn't know that there was a hierarchy. You would think the church was just ordinary folk in the different neighborhoods and different provinces of the Roman Empire, because that's how Christianity described. He says, uh, they're ordinary people with the different regional accents, different lines of work, the same problems of everybody else, but there are differences. There's three differences. At least in English, it begins with C. It was written in Greek, so I don't know what letter it began with in Greek. But the, the overwhelming was charity. And the author almost seems to write it with a little bit of uh, humor. He says, you know, believe it or not, they love those who hate them. I mean, they're serious about this charity. And they, they're an inspiration. I guess he was a little bit of, of a philosopher. He says, the way the soul inspires the body and vivifies the body, 
these Christians who live in the different neighborhoods inspire the empire. And they're repaid with hatred. He says, number two, he says, believe it or not, more or less. I'm, that's the gist of it. They're chaste. They actually stay with one wife. Believe it or not. It's sort of the tone. And thirdly, he said, they're so dedicated that they will die for their founder, whose name is Christ. Other than that, they're like everybody else. Well, quite a difference in a certain sense. What he saw, I would almost say a, a little bit of a conditional prophecy. Well, the prophecies come through. It's working. We, the surface has barely been scratched. And he says, we don't want it to be a cliché, what did he say when he saw this light? And it's it, a little bit different than other preternatural events because, you know, poor Juan Diego, all of a sudden he gets an apparition. He didn't expect that. The three little kids in Fatima didn't expect that. St. Bernadette didn't expect it. I'm sure Sister Faustina didn't expect it. I mean, it's different. Our father, when he was a teenager, he saw those footprints in the snow, and those footprints in the snow started to speak to him, metaphorically. And he realized God wanted something special from him. It wasn't the priesthood. The priesthood would be instrumental in perceiving and being more available for what God was asking of him. And he prayed 10 years plus, but all-nighters, all-afternooners, penance, pilgrimages to Our Lady of the Pillar in Saragossa. And finally he saw it. He was praying a lot, Lord, that I may see. And then he saw the work. And my interpretation of that is that Opus Dei is, we have to emphasize that, it depends on the interior life. It really rests on our prayer life. And that's why the founding of the work occurred that way. And St. Maria said that the divine paths of the earth have been opened. What does that mean, Lord? What are you saying to me about it? Because that could become a cliche. And it could, you know, be worn out cliche. Divine pathway is something alive, something fluid. I am called to be this divine pathway. I am called, little old me, little sinful me, little weak me. It's not about me, it's about having the vessel of clay filled with Christ, and fine, I may be a zero or insignificant, but if Christ is dwelling in me, well, Christ is unstoppable. That I have to be this extension of the mercy of Christ, as the Holy Father says in his exhortation on holiness, we are the heart of Christ. We reveal the heart of Christ, using some ideas of Mother Teresa. And I have to be that divine pathway. What the work did, what this charism did, was open up greater access to connect with Jesus Christ. And we look at the historical situation 
of the founding of the work, it's kind of wedged between two atrocious manifestations of the culture of death that prompted contemporary tradition has that kind of prompted uh, Leo Thirteenth at the turn of the 19th century, entering into the 20th century, to compose the prayer to St. Michael. And in the wake of the great World War I, Our Lady tells the little children at Fatima during that war that this is a consequence of a rejecting of her son. It's, I'd say, more than a punishment. When we reject God, all sorts of tragedy occurs. The Bolshevik Revolution, a regime for the first time, I think, in human history, uh, predicated on a hatred of God. So, very much our Lord's style, an insignificant young man, you know, now that I'm older, uh, when you're in your 20s, from my perspective, you're a little beyond infancy stage. So, you know, he, okay, this kid now becomes this founder of changing the world, and he's got nothing going for me. He's bordering on destitution, literally. And he's rejected by his natural family in Saragossa. He's trying to make ends meet uh, to support his family because his mother's a widow. He has two siblings, and he's tutoring people in law, and he's trying to get his law degree uh, in order to be able to teach and to, ma- to make ends meet. And then even humanly speaking, he realizes that, you know, at least those with the program, the church is doing pretty well if, you're, if you stay with the program. Religious orders chock full of vocations. Seminaries chock full of seminarians. Plenty of priests, maybe too many. Never too many, but as long as you keep busy and do pastoral work. And so he said, well... In a certain sense, I don't want to be a founder of anything. I'm going to just try to sign up for something. So he's going to do some research to see if he could join something. Uh, you know, between his prayer and his spiritual direction, he realized, no, this is different. And it's perceived as heretical because you don't have to become a Carmelite. In fact, you should be as holy as a Carmelite. In fact, you have as much responsibility <coughs> in evangelizing and getting the gospel out there as the archbishop. Same obligation. And you're called to have the same level of love for God as as St. Teresa of Avila. So that was seen as very liberal, very heretical. And we realize now, with the perspective history, that there is a power vacuum. It'd be collective pride to say, hey, we're the only guys who are doing something. A lot of good people, a lot of good institutions. But there ain't a lot. Our Lord does not have that many friends. There's not many groups who are hearing we have to change the world. We pray that they are. There's not many who have a grace to see that my apostolate is an overflow of my love for Jesus Christ. And that, yes, 
we will change the world. God will change the world. How? I, I don't know, but he will. And what's so special about the canonization? Well, canonization is special, but what's so special about this one? And because the former father, Don Javier, would say, contemplate the canonization event. Yeah, well, yeah, I was there in Rome. We really whooped it up in this really good restaurant. It's a hole in the world wall, but the food was really good. Okay, and we partied a little bit. It was a real festive occasion. I don't know if he means that. I think he means this. Uh, I was in a workshop for vicars, and there's a big map, Mappa Mundi, where uh, Opus Dei has tabernacles or centers. And uh, when I... When I was living there in the 70s, late 70s, the, the Mapamundi was, you know, part of you know, a lot of South America, a little part of Africa. None of the satellite former communist countries, but it still looked like a lot. But, you know, now, you know, whatever, six years ago when I was there, uh, a significant portion of that map has the color that Opus Dei has a center there. You know, Moscow, you hit the jackpot there because that's significant land mass that is covered with the color that corresponds to a center. Anyway, Don Javier walked in. It wasn't melodramatic. We're waiting for him to come, and we're milling about, and we're in front of that map. Some guys are looking at it. There's 75 vicars. And he said, uh, my sons meditate on the October 2nd event. And... This was madness. This was insanity, he said. No one believed him. He had nothing going for him. Now look. What he saw is now a reality. Scratching the surface, barely scratching the surface, we know that. And it is a question of sanctity. Because at the canonization, that world that perhaps St. Josemaria saw when he founded the work, when he gave that famous benediction to his first circle of three boys, where he saw 30, 300,000, 30 million, all different races and nationalities, became a reality at the canonization event. I was lucky to be there. I wasn't at the beatification. And the crowds of people, those of you who were there, extended to the shores of the Tiber. Every roof was packed with people. Every window had three or four heads peering out of that window. You had, whatever, 500 prelates con-celebrating. You had the future St. John Paul. It was cosmic, almost, almost apocalyptic. And then you had a half a million people attending the Mass, and you heard an absolute silence during the Mass. And John Paul was so impressed with that, he wanted a repeat performance for ecumenical reasons, because the, the Patriarch of, of Bucharest was there, and he wanted him to see the same thing. So we had a gathering with St. John Paul the, second, the, the next day. So what are you telling me here? You're telling me this. Today's gospel is put out into the deep. It's the miraculous catch. 
And it's basically an allegory. It should be an allegory of our life. It was an allegory of, of St. Jose Maria's life, where, okay, the world looks like the empty lake. We've toiled all night and caught nothing. It looks very empty now with all these bad isms going on and now these crises in the church. Well, Lord, there's nothing in the lake. Well, now there is because I'm next to you. And now that I'm present, you're going you're gonna to find fish because I'm present. We have to be the net, especially the net that our Lord is mandating to extend into the lake of the world. We need to be that net. That net is charity. That net is sanctity. And our Lord is saying, yes, humanly speaking, lowering your nets for a catch doesn't make sense because the timing is wrong. I mean, people are not disposed to the gospel. Uh, Our Lord is saying they are but we have to be the real deal. A couple of people told me, they've made it very clear, so the work's not for me. The formative activities, some of them are for me, but it's not for me. I, that's not my calling. And they said, but this is one of the hopes of the church. And one of the gentlemen said, please be faithful, because the world and the church is counting on you. They may not realize it, but they're counting on you. Make this work. Make this happen. He says, the work is God's way of bringing the gospel into the world. And so we want to embrace this with an attitude of faith and reiterating and renewing our desire to be holy because holiness is about me. It's not about my devotions or my interior life. It's about, well, in an immediate sense, our family and then our colleagues and our friends and anybody. We're always peddling it. And therefore, I'm a vessel of clay. But in that vessel is our Lord. And it depends on my commitment to him. Without him, we could do nothing, but without us, he could do nothing. It's kind of a partnership here. Notice that our Lord never says, I work the miracle. He says, great is your faith. He always gives the credit to the man with faith or the woman with faith. But finish up asking Our Lady to ingrain this very profound point, which probably takes a whole retreat to digest, uh, point one and forge. We are children of God, bearers of the only flame that can light up the paths of the earth for souls, of the only brightness which can never be darkened, dimmed, or overshadowed. The Lord uses us as torches to make that light shine out. Much depends on us if we respond, many people will remain in darkness no longer, but will walk instead along paths that lead to eternal life. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help in putting them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, My guardian angel intercede for me.